How willing are you to listen to parenting advice from a, someone who's never had kids? Be a little hard, right? What does this person know about the subject? Could they possibly teach someone else? And yet twice in these last two verses that Evan read for us, Paul gives instruction to fathers about how to be a good dad. What are his credentials? I mean, the most important one is that he was an apostle. God was speaking through Paul to the churches at Ephesus and Colossae. And yet Paul wasn't just saying words, and his life actually backed up his admonitions. Uh, we're going to look at these two passages and several others, and I think the main point of these is this idea. Godly fathers teach their kids without making them angry. Godly fathers teach their kids without making them angry. Ephesians 6 says not to provoke children to anger. And then the one in uh, Colossians says don't exasperate your children, which is a very, these, these words are synonyms. As we look through the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, we see connections between the ideas of, of bitterness, of jealousy, and of anger. These three words are sort of linked throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes they're described in connection with God's attitude toward His people in trying to promote their holiness, and when they turned across to idols, then He was jealous of them. So sometimes it's used in a positive sense, but sometimes it's also used in a negative sense that where there is jealousy and sinful anger, there's also bitterness. And that's kind of more the sense that I think we see here. Um, what produces these evil fruits in the lives of children? What do fathers do or not do that produces these evil fruits? I think the answer is sinful parenting, either neglecting to instruct and discipline or by an ungodly example that makes kids say, why would I ever want to live that way? Uh, a disconnect between what's said and what's done. Obviously, God's Spirit has to produce good fruit in our lives, right? This is not something we manufacture on our own. But parents, particularly fathers, have an essential God-given role in the process of development. And let's start by thinking about this idea of teaching. Godly fathers, number one, are purposeful about what they teach their kids. And this idea of teaching, I think, comes from Ephesians 6, verse 4, where it says to bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. What must a father teach his kids? Not how to get rich? Not how to impress people, not how to match some cultural ideal of adulthood, but teach them about God, about what God wants for them. Teaching them, first of all, who God is through His Word. Uh, so we saw from the passage there in Deuteronomy, what is God like? Well, it says that there is one God. It says that... Um, in a variety of other places throughout, uh, Deuteronomy 11 comments on this further as well. Let me read for you from that, from that section. Um, it says, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep His charge, His statutes, His ordinances, and His commandments. Know this day that I am not speaking with your sons who have not known and have not seen the discipline of the Lord your God, His greatness, His mighty hand, and His outstretched arm, His signs and His works, which He did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh the king of Egypt and to all his land. And what he did to Egypt's army, its horses and chariots, what he made the water of the Red Sea engulf them when they were pursuing you, and the Lord completely destroyed them, what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, when the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them among all Israel. But your own eyes have seen the great work of the Lord which he did. And um, a little bit later it says, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your, 
on, on your hand, they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking to them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. So what things do we see about God from passages like that? God is awesome in His person and in His works. We see glimpses of that here. Here's all the armies that He put to flight and destroyed. Here's the people that He judged when they offered false incense. They were, they were, the earth swallowed them up and destroyed them. God was very concerned about the way that He was worshipped. Uh, we see that He's a God who keeps His promises and intended to keep His promises. We see, as we look even last week at Isaiah 40, here's God who holds the oceans in the palm of His hand, who spreads out the stars as though He's unfolding a scroll. God is great and God is powerful, and God demonstrates that by the works that He does in the world. And so what do we need to teach our kids? We need to teach them that God is awesome, that He's amazing in His person and in His works. He is therefore worthy of our praise and worship. But it's not just that God is high and exalted and over there and holy and all those sorts of things, which is true. We absolutely should impress those on them. But also that God is personal, that he reveals himself repeatedly and patiently to sinful, rebellious people. Going back again to Isaiah and the other prophets over and over and over again. God spoke to his people through the prophets, telling them truth, reminding them of who he was, imploring them to follow after him. And that should in us provoke a response of thankfulness for His kindness. And then even building on those two things, because God is powerful and sovereign and holy and all of that, and because He has a desire to reveal and communicate Himself to people and for people to have relationship to Him, God mightily works so that His Son is born of a virgin, comes to reveal God face-to-face to people, and make it possible for people to have that relationship with God. So both the degree of God being exalted and holy, and the idea of God being personal and revealing Himself, those are both united in the person of Jesus Christ, who comes to earth, lives a perfect life, makes salvation possible for those who would believe in Him. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve it. We still don't deserve it, even as His people. And yet God pours out His grace and mercy on us. And so, there are many, many, many more things that we could teach our kids about God and who He is. But that is a summary of some of the really important things that we need to communicate. And we do this by more than just Bible stories. Are Bible stories bad? No. But if we just know the Bible stories and we don't have a framework on which to hang it to see, here's what God is doing in the world... There's more that we want to know about God and who He is, right? Um, it's more than just, you know, reading through Psalms and Proverbs. And reading through Psalms and Proverbs is good, but we need to teach our kids all of what the Bible says about God. But not just teaching them about who God is and what He's done, but also teaching them what God expects of us. And that comes up in the passages in Deuteronomy, but... What are a couple of specific examples, summary statements of what God expects of us? To love Him and not the world. For the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, this looked like avoiding the idolatry of the pagan nations around them. When we come to John in 1 John 2, 15-17, he says, Don't love the corrupt world system, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the foolish pride of life. These are not of the Father, but are of the world. And so, we ought to love God with all of who we are, 
to love our neighbors as ourselves. We ought not love the world around us, idolatry, sinful practices, all of the things that are bad and broken about this world in which we find ourselves. And not just to love God, but also to be like Him. Uh, And we see that in Deuteronomy 6 and 7, that as we learn who God is, and as we remind one another of these truths, then there is a sense in which we come to be like God. We see this also in Ephesians 4, where it says, uh, in the context of the church, He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So, what does God expect? That the body of Christ would be built up. But then even beyond that, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith, that there is a unity in being built up in faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You say, well, that's all about the church. Yes, but what happens in our homes contributes to that work that God is doing to accomplish spiritual maturity collectively and distributively and throughout the church body. And so it's not enough just to say, here's what God is like. We should do that. And it's not enough just to say, here's what God expects, but to see how all those things fit together. Because God is holy, God wants you to be holy in all that you do. Because God is personal and loving and shows mercy to us as undeserving people, we ought to desire relationships with people that are difficult and show love to them and mercy to them and God's love to them. And so we see the connections between all these things and we communicate those to our kids and there's much more that we could teach them, but those are some of the really important building blocks of what we're supposed to teach them. Give them a vision for the greatness of God and the wonder of who He is and then help them to see how that then leads to what God expects of them in their lives. Now the reality is, apart from them having a relationship with Jesus, we can teach and teach and teach who God is and what God wants and we can have a degree of them knowing the facts about God and a degree of external conformity to the what God wants so, for example, Micah 6, 8 says, What does he require of you, O man, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And you can have people who at least externally appear to do justly and to love mercy, but unless they come to really and truly know God, are not going to walk humbly with him. And that's a real danger that we have to watch out for. Because... Sometimes I think it's easy for us to assume as long as we've communicated the facts, as long as they can recite them back to us and quote Bible verses and show up to church and all those sorts of things, everything is good. And I know many of you have had to face the heartbreak of kids who grew up in church and are no longer in church. Is that your fault? 
It's a complicated question, right? To the extent that you fulfilled what God has called you to do as a parent, you and I cannot control the outcome of our children's lives. To the extent that we fail to do what God called us to do as parents, we have to acknowledge that and deal with it with God, and sometimes with our kids, and then say, I cannot go back and redo this segment of time, right? But I can, from this point forward, say, here's what God is calling me to do particularly in context with what I'm talking about this morning as a father. Um, you say, well, I don't, I don't really have an opportunity to, to, to teach these things because my kids aren't at home anymore or whatever. I mean, it's certainly easier to do when they're at home, but you can teach your kids what God is like. You can talk to them about what God expects of them, and you can do that even with them as adults. It's not the same relationship. It's not as easy. There's challenges. I get all that, right? But our responsibility doesn't stop just because they're not living at home anymore. We must teach. But the reality is also, even as importantly, if not more importantly, if our lives don't match what we're saying, ultimately our kids will stop listening. And so the second part, and this is where I want us to spend most of our time, is to look at how Paul and others live before their children. For Paul, living before his spiritual children, uh, modeling what God was like, not just talking about it, I think the fact that we see Paul giving these instructions and alluding to himself as a spiritual father and all these sorts of things means that there is a role for every one of you as men who are older in the congregation to have an impact on the lives of those who are younger after you in the church. Now, is what I'm talking about a specifically Ephesians 6, 4, Colossians 3, 21, are those commands to fathers? Yes. That being said... There is a place for grandfathers and for older men in the church to not think, my kids are grown, they're no longer at home, I have nothing to do as far as this kind of a role with other people in the church. Again, it's not an identical relationship, right? Um, there's tensions with this, right? If you, see, uh, if you see a little kid doing something you think the kid shouldn't do, but the parents are standing right there, there's a degree to which that's their thing, and you know, unless it's an immediate safety issue that you really think they don't see, you have to let them parent, right? But there's also a sense in which, remarkably, and sometimes unexpectedly, God can use someone who's not in any way like biologically or legally related to you to have a huge impact on your life. You know, for example... Um, my grandpa was, my grandpa died when I was about Braden's age, so I didn't, my mom's father, so I didn't have him as part of my life for all those years. But it was interesting how different people along the way had impact on my life in, I think, ways that he would have had he been around. And even when I was at Inner City, there was a man that I've mentioned a number of times named Jesse Martin, who was kind of like a grandpa to me. We spent a lot of time together doing ministry, just talking about life, him giving me godly advice. And there was a relationship that we came to have because I came alongside him and he came alongside me that had nothing to do with whether we were related in any way from anybody else's perspective. But it was a real thing nonetheless. And my point with that is to say, if we put effort into relationships we can have impact on people's lives in that same way. 
to give advice, to model what Christ-likeness looks like, to point people to God. And so that's where I think the role of Paul comes in. If Paul could call Timothy and Titus and all these other people his spiritual sons, even the Corinthians, there's a place for you, no matter what your status is, you've never had kids, your kids aren't at home, whatever, to still have ongoing ministry to people around you, particularly those who are younger. There's also the interesting reality that a lot of the examples we have of biological fathers, particularly in the Old Testament, are not all that great of examples for us, right? So we're going to look in a moment at you know, Jacob and several others, and they were not great examples. So in the end, it's not about primarily the biological relationship, although that is the command in the passage and that, that is the, the emphasis in these two passages, and that is where I think God puts the primary responsibility it comes down to whether we are willing to invest in ministry in the lives of the people around us. So the second big idea is this. Godly fathers not only are purposeful about what they teach their kids, but they are purposeful about how they teach their kids. And I think the first example under this is through a godly example of sacrificial love, not selfish favoritism. Through a godly example of sacrificial love, not selfish favoritism. Favoritism does only what helps me out. Isaac, in the Old Testament, loved his oldest son Esau. Why? Because Esau was a hunter, and Isaac liked the meat that he brought home and cooked for him. I guess the parallel for us would be to say, um, if one of your kids said, Hey, Dad, I, I bought you steaks. You're like, you're my favorite kid. It's kind of a shallow way to approach parenting, isn't it? But that is essentially, why did Isaac love Esau? Not because he saw in him this great potential for following after God, not because they spent all this meaningful time together, not because of all that, because he liked the food that he brought him. That's a really shallow, selfish way to approach parenting. And what was the effect of that? In Jacob's life, Jacob wanted his father's affection, and so he was willing to go to whatever extremes to get it. He cheated, he lied, he tricked his father. Now, was that still on Jacob for choosing to act that way? Absolutely. But Isaac created the conditions for Jacob to steal Esau's birthright because of the favoritism that he showed between his two sons. Isaac looked down on Jacob, it seems, because Jacob was more a guy who spent more time with his mother, wasn't interested in the outdoors, all those sorts of things. And so Jacob says, you know what? I'm going to act like Esau. I'm going to get you to think that I'm Esau to get what I want from you. Now, I'm trying not to read in the passage, but I think this then plays a role in Jacob's own favoritism. Now, Jacob's favoritism was different. Jacob's favoritism wasn't so much, I love your cooking and the meat that you bring for me, and I really enjoy eating it, so you're going to be my favorite. Jacob's favoritism was he foolishly marries or has a marital relationship with four women, picks one of them to be his favorite, and says her kids are the best, the ones that I love the most, because I love her the most. There's a whole bunch of reasons why this is a terrible situation for any kind of family unity, right? But what, does Jacob, what do Jacob's actions do? 
Jacob loving Joseph because Rachel is his favorite wife leads Jacob's older sons to hate Joseph so much that when they see him coming, they're like, this is it. We're just going to kill him and get rid of him. Why did it get to that point? Because over and over and over again, Jacob says, hey, here's Joseph. Hey, here's his coat. Hey, this, this special coat I'm going to give him. Hey, go check on your brothers. Make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. He's one of the youngest, and his father's putting him in charge over his brothers. He doesn't trust them, so he sends Joseph to go check on them. And finally, they just get to the point, they say, we're done with this. Now, God obviously spares Joseph's life. God uses him greatly. God works despite all the sinful choices of people. But Jacob, showing favoritism, led to his sons being provoked to anger, which leads to eventually to murder, being provoked to bitterness and jealousy, which leads to the same kinds of things. Jacob exasperated his children in the way that Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 warns against. In contrast, sacrificial love, not favoritism, sacrificial love seeks the good of others. You see someone like Paul who pours out his life for people like Timothy and Titus and the various churches. So, for example, in, um, if I can turn there, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, it says, Don't sharply rebuke to an older man, but appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. There's a sense in which there are supposed to be these familial relationships in the church, and Paul modeled that in the way he related to men like Timothy and Titus. Paul became, therefore, a spiritual father, for example, to the Corinthians, by sharing the truth of the gospel with them. He says to them in 1 Corinthians 4.15, If you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. The verse before that, I don't write these things to shame you, but admonish you as my beloved children. The verse after that, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Paul became a spiritual father to the Corinthians, and then furthermore, he backed up these words of the gospel with a life of service. Um, it says, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul was willing to pour out his life on the behalf of people that he had preached the gospel to, he had become a spiritual father to, and he was living as a godly example in front of. And Paul was willing to do this. He served the Corinthians even when they didn't love him back. There are so many times as you read First and Second Corinthians, you catch glimpses of the fact that Paul loved the people of Corinth at the church there, and he had ministered and served among them for, as I recall, three years, pouring his life out on their behalf. And as soon as he's no longer there with them, he starts getting reports they're fighting. They've decided that they like Apollos because he's tall and handsome and talks better than you, Paul. They've decided that they think, Paul, yeah, he talks big when he's with us, but he's not all that impressive in person, so what do we need him for? Someone pours out his life on behalf of people like that only to have that be their response. Imagine how hard that would have been for Paul. And yet he said, like I think earthly fathers do, 
These are still my children. I'm not going to give up on them. That, I think, is a picture of the kind of sacrificial love that we sang about in a lot of the songs earlier in the service that God shows to us, not abandoning us when we are rebellious and stubborn and go, and go our own way, not uh, having made us His because of something He could get out of it. One of the really important ways that fathers can avoid provoking their children to anger is by showing sacrificial love instead of favoritism. Another um, reality is that it's not just favoritism, although that is one of the ways that will provoke to anger and jealousy instead of godliness, but failing to discipline your children in the right way also will promote bitterness in their souls. Ephesians 6.4 says not only do we bring them up in the instruction of the Lord, but also in the discipline of the Lord. And so, as godly fathers, we need to teach our kids by disciplining them as God disciplines. What does this look like? Well, it needs to be something that is consistent and not arbitrary. In the passage in Hebrews 12, in uh, verse 10, it says, They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. The reality is, as fathers, our discipline is imperfect. That's the illustration the author of Hebrews is using. We still respect our parents, but we recognize there were times when they disciplined us because they were frustrated or because they didn't have all the facts or whatever else. And sometimes this goes to the extreme of they just do it out of anger and, and lack of control. I mean, there are abusive fathers in the world, and that's a reality. But even the best of fathers who are trying to do what's right often fail. And, and they discipline for the wrong reasons, and they are inconsistent, and they're arbitrary, and all of those sorts of things. God disciplines for our good. As Hebrews 12 says, to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness, or verse 10, so that we may share His holiness, or even to show His love by the fact that He's concerned for our souls so He doesn't just let us go our own way. What does this kind of discipline look like? I think we recognize that it's built on instruction. Sometimes, like when we were talking about church discipline, sometimes we just look at the end point, like the very difficult spots at the end where someone is stubbornly refusing to turn from sin and they have to be put out of the church. But that's only a small part of what discipline looks like. There's a, there's a real sense in which most of it's supposed to happen over here in the instruction part of things. Teach what God is like, teach what God expects, and then if those two things are ignored repeatedly, there has to be some sort of consequences. And so this is where I feel like I struggle with a lot of the Christian books on parenting. Because let's be honest, um, particularly in like the homeschool movement or like super conservative segments of Christianity, there's kind of been this attitude that if you just spank your kids enough, everything will turn out okay. That's not true. There are a number of situations in which that is not appropriate or feasible because of fostering or adoption or a variety of other things. And so if we say this one tool that's mentioned in one verse in Proverbs and in other places in the, in the Bible is the only thing that's in view when we hear a word like discipline, it's a pretty short-sighted and narrow view of what God has in mind here. The goal 
is not to use one tool to accomplish forcing our kids to do what we want them to do. The goal is to see God work in the lives of ourselves and our children such that we take sin seriously and we turn from it and together we all grow closer to God. So if we see our kids doing things that are dangerous, they go to touch a hot stove, they go to run into the road, uh, they want to hang out with friends who are going to go get drunk and do foolish, stupid, sinful things, we don't just sit back and say, yeah, hope you figure it out on your own. But we also should not be controlling to the extent of thinking that we are always going to be there to force them to do the right choice. And so as time goes on and as they get older, and to the extent that we've had more and more opportunities to teach them about these things, there comes a point where we have to give them over to God and say, I've laid the foundation and I'm trusting that they will make right decisions. And that's a hard thing, right? Because we always want to be there to insulate our children from the disasters of the world, right? But we can't. And so especially when they're younger, there needs to be this strong effort to, to teach them what's right and wrong, to help them to make wise decisions, all of these sorts of things, and to keep doing that. But there comes a point where they're living on their own and the relationship changes and we can't do it in quite the same way. We have to have laid good groundwork early on and while they're still at home. So when you go to discipline your children, recognize that it is part of the whole process, not the only part of the process. Let it be done for the right reasons, not out of anger or frustration, or because other people are watching, you're worried about what they're thinking about how your kids are behaving. Let it be because, like God, you're concerned for the holiness of their souls and their spiritual good. A second part of disciplining as God disciplines is this idea of encouraging versus criticizing. 1 Thessalonians 2.11, I think, is a really helpful verse along these lines. And uh, in that verse, it says this. It says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There's two ways to go about this. You're a terrible child. Why don't you ever do anything right? What's wrong with you? Here's what God wants you to do. How is what you're doing not lining up with what God said? Here's all the things that you're doing right, but we need to talk about this thing. I'm thankful for how God's helped you to grow in this area, but, but we still need to work on this. One is an attitude of basically yelling at them in hopes that they'll start listening, which rarely works. The other is saying, how can I, by God's grace, help you to take the next step spiritually? Let me illustrate it this way. I played soccer two years in high school. The first year I had a coach who, um, kind, of a, kind of a chubby guy, um, kind of stood on the sidelines, kind of just yelled at us. Hey, you need to do this. Hey, you need to do that. 
I mean, he's our coach, so we listened to him, and we would try to do what he wanted us to do. Um, the next year, our coach was a guy who liked to run marathons for fun, and there's strange people like that in the world. Um, and he would get out there, and be like, all right, we're going to go for a run. And here's all these high school guys who are like, you know, we're high school guys, we're pretty with it, we're, you know, young, strong, whatever. And he's like way out there, and we're embarrassed because he's so far ahead of us. He's like, come on, guys, let's, let's go do this. Let's just go run 10 miles, right? Which one of those is more motivating? The fat guy yelling at you or the marathon runner saying, come on, let's go. That, I think, is the picture that Paul gives us in 1 Thessalonians 2.11. Don't yell from the sidelines. Be an example of what you want your kids to do and pull them along by God's grace to the vision that God has for their lives. Encourage, don't just criticize. And when I say that, I don't just mean ignore the bad stuff that they do and act like it's not a big deal and never say anything to them about it, but the way that we approach dealing with those things is really important. I think in connection with this, it's really easy for us to focus on the realities of sin and the brokenness of this world and all of those sorts of things, and life is going to be hard if you follow after Jesus, I don't mean that that's what Christianity, professing Christianity broadly focuses on. I think maybe it's more where we would tend to focus for a variety of reasons. Um, there's a line from a song I was listening to recently where it says, God's good, but life's still hard. We tend to think of it the other way, right? We should start with life is hard, but God's still good. But a lot of times it's the other way around, right? We know the truth, but this is the reality. That being said we should, I think, more often than we do, focus on the joy of serving God. And that is part of that spurring people on to what God has for them next. Right? Um, I, I'm not at all doing this perfectly. But there is a real sense in which I can either sit at home and blame God for the circumstances of my life and say I don't understand and I don't like and I don't want and all of those sorts of things and say it's not worth it following God, and I'm done, and, and why, right? Or I can say, God has brought me to this point, and God can bring me to the next point, and there is work to be done for God in this world, so are we going to do it or not? Paul went through a lot in his life, right? He got beaten, people hated him. There, were, there was a group of people that followed him around that were constantly trying to get him killed. Can you imagine how discouraging that would be, how frustrating that would be? There's a very real possibility that he actually died at the one point in Acts and God raised him to life and sent him on his way, right? Paul went through a lot in his life too, but do you know what he did not do? He didn't give up and say, oh, my life's hard. I'm, I'm done. 
I've, I've given all I'm willing to give for God, so that's it. And if God used Paul, who had been through all that, to still say, I'm going to encourage you and spur you on and, and want you to follow after God, and even at the very end of his life, you know, 1 Thessalonians probably written earlier in his ministry, even at the very end of his life in his letters to Timothy and Titus, he is saying, I'm coming to the end of my course, but you keep going. If God can do that for him, God can do that for us. So don't quit. Don't give up. Don't just say, life is hard, so what's the point? Keep fulfilling the ministry that God calls you to do as a father. And then I think a third one that's really important in connection with this idea of discipline is holiness instead of hypocrisy. Um, There's a bunch of things about this in 1 Peter 2 that I'm just going to read for you real quick. Um, Peter says this, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the world, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed." This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, uh, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Going back to the initial idea about discipline from Hebrews 12, The goal of it is holiness, not hypocrisy. It's really easy for us to want ourselves and our kids to live a certain way to be seen by other people, or to fulfill personal dreams, or various other manipulative approaches that fathers can sometimes have. This tends to sort of the lie that we think, well, I can say something well like, do what I say, not what I do, as though we expect that that actually is going to happen. Um or a point where we're content with external conformity without any real heart change, Peter says God's goal for us is holiness. Not that we look good on the outside, not that we can kind of know the right things and follow the right approach and whatever for a while, but that we genuinely, truly want to serve God as part of this royal priesthood, as members of a chosen race and a holy nation, so that God can hold up His people before the world, like it talks about in Ephesians 5, and say, here is a bride that is now spotless and pure and adorned in holiness, right? That's what God's doing with the church, and that's part of our responsibility, what we're supposed to be doing as fathers, and so our goal should be that, not 
hypocrisy in our own lives that drives our kids away from wanting to follow after God. Um, not hypocrisy in their lives where we're content with just as long as there's no big things that are happening, it's okay. But real and genuine holiness. We can't manufacture this. We need to pre pray earnestly, plead with God to produce it in their lives, but the way that we live in front of them impacts this. If I say, yeah, reading your Bible is really important, but they never see me reading my Bible, they're probably not going to do it. If I say being involved in ministry at the church is really important, but you're not involved in ministry at the church, they're not going to do it. If you say, Loving your wife is really important, but they don't see you loving your wife. They're not going to do it. If, whatever it is, if you say stuff and your life doesn't back it up, it's going to produce hypocrisy in them as they see the hypocrisy in you. And God's goal is holiness, not hypocrisy. And so, as fathers... We need to be purposeful about what we teach. Here's who God is, and here's what God expects of us. But we also need to be careful about the way that we teach. Not exercising favoritism, but sacrificial love. And then being thoughtful about the way that we discipline. Consistently, with encouragement, with the goal of holiness. There are so many more things in Scripture on this topic, but I think if we get these basics right and live them out faithfully, I think by God's grace, you and I can be fathers who teach our kids by word and example about the great God we're supposed to be serving with all of our lives. This is not the sort of stuff you're going to find in a how-to book on parenting, at least a lot of them, right? Right? Because what we want in those sorts of books is here's the ten easy steps to make your kids love you and your life go well, right? What God lays out for us is hard work. What God lays out for us is a lifelong commitment. What God lays out for us is an impossible task apart from His grace, but that doesn't mean it's not worth pursuing. It doesn't mean He won't help us. It doesn't mean that it is a glorious responsibility. And so fathers... Teach your kids in a way that doesn't make them angry. Because that's what God calls you to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience with us. Help us to be godly fathers, even as you are a perfect father. Many times we fail, many times we fall short, but this is still an amazing privilege that you've given to us. Help us to do it well. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.